The Tampa Bay Lightning win yet another playoff series. It is the Canucks Hour here on Sportsnet 650. I am Jamie Dodd, my co-host. No, no, they really can't at this point. My co-host, you hear him there, is Canucks insider Thomas Drance. You can read his work at The Athletic covering the Canucks as well. Canucks Hour brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery. Visit avenuemachinery.ca. Yeah, that's 10 playoff series wins in a row for the Tampa Bay Lightning. Of course, the last one they lost was that embarrassing and humiliating sweep at the hands of the Columbus Blue Jackets, and uh, John Cooper was actually asked about that last night after the game, after they finished off the sweep with the Florida Panthers, and, you know, what what did you learn from that? And all he said was, well, we haven't lost one since. And... He kind of left it at that, but when you look at that, not just the fact that they win yet another playoff series, but the fact that they, I, I don't know, it's not that they dominated that game, obviously. I mean, they Florida massively outshot them, and they had Andre Vasilevsky, but at the same time, did you ever really doubt that Tampa was going to win that game? I don't, I don't know if there was really a moment of strong doubt in my mind. All right, we're having some technical difficulties here with uh, Drancer's mic, but we'll get him figured out in just a second so you can hear uh, the the dulcet tones of Thomas Drance. There There we go. go. There we go. So, there was no doubt in my mind that the Tampa Bay Lightning were going to complete the sweep, and here's why. When you know how to win, right, like the Tampa Bay Lightning do, you respect the possibility that you could lose. Right? You don't know how to win like the Tampa Bay Lightning know how to win if you don't recognize an imposing opponent when you see them. Right, And it's not that the Florida Panthers were going to beat them or come back from a 3 nothing series deficit. It's that if you sweep the Panthers now, you plant a seed of doubt in a team that you're going to be competing against for years to come, a durable seed of doubt about their ability to belong on the same sheet as you. And you just knew that this Tampa Bay Lightning group was too savvy to let that opportunity slide. Now, they almost did. They got throttled in the first mm-hmm. period. But they also put three, like, they had so many disallowed goals. They scored. Yeah. <laughs> well, they were the team scoring, but the Panthers were the team generating pressure. Ultimately, one of the most interesting parts of this playoff that I think we've now seen is the effectiveness with which Certain teams and Tampa Bay Lightning, sort of the front of the list because they're the team, they're the team that's done it best, but they're not the only ones. The Washington Capitals against the Florida Panthers employed this one-three-one in the neutral zone, and it's slightly modified because you've got a defender who's deeper than what you'd expect on a normal one-three-one, which makes it difficult to do the dump-in thing. Right? Usually, if a team's trapping it up against you, you go, you put it behind, you go battle. And they were putting this defender deeper. And that gave a template to the Lightning. And they did the same thing against the Panthers. And and they did a little bit against the Leafs, although the Leafs had far more success because the Leafs moved the puck more quickly east-west as they move up ice. But that's a hard thing to do. Like, you're making east-west passes in transition at 5-on-5? Five five? That's dangerous. Like, that's dangerous. The Tampa Bay Lightning can feast on the counter in those types of situations. Washington? Maybe not quite so much, but they can certainly frustrate skilled teams. In doing this, and, and I talked, you know, it was Boudreaux who really pointed this out to me earlier today. I was I was chatting with Bruce Boudreaux. And 
What's interesting about it is if you do this as well as the Tampa Bay Lightning have done, you're able to turn games into more of a half-court game. And, and that diminishes sort of the skill edge, or the speed edge anyway, that I think some teams, uh, certainly I thought some teams would have in a decisive way over the Tampa Bay Lightning, and obviously that has not come to bear. The Tampa Bay Lightning, just too good, too good on special teams, too good in net, and obviously have figured out a way to neuter, or at least diminish, the extent to which that edge, that their Atlantic, it's Atlantic Division rivals, no, Metro? Met, no, no, it's the Atlantic. They let their their Fourth East Division rivals had over them going into the uh, the series. Now the Tampa Bay Lightning are playing for history. They're eight wins away from being, you know, talked about as one of the great teams of all time. We haven't seen back to back to back in thirty years. Yeah, forty almost. Forty, right? Yeah, since be, before my since life. It, yeah, we weren't born yet. It'll be the the eighties Islanders are the last team to win three in a row. Incredible. Now, they won four. Yeah. So even more impressive, but yeah, we have not seen three in a row since the but, early. But 80s. not in the cap era. I no, mean, certainly not. Honestly, this is this is really remarkable. Now they have eight more wins to get. They could have a really tough opponent in the next round. Uh, well, they will have a really tough opponent. They'll either have Shesterkin, or they'll have the Carolina Hurricanes. Either way, you're in tough, right? Yeah. Like, either way, but obviously, uh, uh, what the Tampa Bay Lightning have now achieved is, is incredible. Interesting thing that I learned too while talking to a Panthers staffer following the win, like a member of their hockey ops department. The 80s Islanders, the 70s Habs, the 80s Oilers, these were top of mind for the Lightning throughout the season, right? Like, they came into the season knowing that their guys had won back-to-backs, that they were tired, and that there needed to be something bigger to rally around. And the idea of joining these teams, like, explicitly – that's been what this season's been about for them yeah. all along. I hadn't realized that they were that conscious of utilizing the history, the opportunity to make it as fuel throughout the season. I hadn't understood that at all, but apparently it was like something they discussed openly as a group in their very first meetings and was sort of a, a rallying cry challenge from Cooper and the organization to the room Throughout this season, I, I was stunned to learn that last night. That's that's a fascinating piece of insight because Cooper has referenced that certainly at points during the Toronto series, but not to the degree to which it would be kind of an explicit theme running throughout the whole team season. It, it makes a lot of sense, though, because I think you just look even past hockey, past the NHL to other sports. You know, one of the thing that distinguishes the kind of all time greats in their respective sports, in their respective athletic competition is the ability to just keep finding new mountains to climb, right? Like, and I, and I always think of, you know, Michael Jordan is the famous example of this, right? Like, using being cut from his high school team to kind of fuel his rise to college. And then you, you remember his Hall of Fame speech, right? Which is basically just... The pettiest yeah. speech in the history of the, the all time. Yeah. <laughs> like, a recitation of grudges he held against people I mean, who doubted I mean, him. Michael, Michael Jordan's an empty husk of a human being. <laughs> yes, but it fueled him to incredible athletic endeavors. And I think that ability to kind of look at it and say, okay, we've already won the Stanley Cup twice. That's old hat for us. Like, that alone is not going to be a motivating factor. We need to find the next thing that's going to drive us to that to that higher level it makes a lot of sense. It's still really hard to do, right? Because, you know, there's a reason we talk about the Stanley Cup hangover or the championship hangover or whatever. You've played so much more hockey than other people. You know, guys are kind of inherently satisfied because they've got to the top. It's hard to work yourself up to that having that kind of psychological edge. But 
I think it's and I, I talked about this a bit on the show yesterday, right? That it once they survived against Toronto, as the closer they get to being on the cusp of history, I think just the more it's going to motivate them, right? Because oh, now yeah. you sweep the earliest that other series can end is Thursday, so that's right there minimum. That's three days where you're relaxing and Braden Point's getting healthy, and the other two teams are playing against each other and going through the rigors of it. Then you're only eight wins away. Like now, it really starts to set in as a motivating factor for them. It, it's also amazing how winning begets winning in hockey, right? I mean, there's a difference between being a good player or a great player and being Steven Stamkos, right? And and the way we're seeing him just eat pucks, right? The way that we're seeing Tampa Bay Lightning players just parade, you know, to the to the room to get checked out after blocking shots. The price they all pay. And and it's almost just old. Uh, you said old hat. That's what you know. Like that's routine for them yeah. at this point. It's like because they tasted it once, they learned how to win, and now you see a clinic in it every time they play, and you notice it obviously against teams that you know don't know how to win yet. Teams that don't quite believe yet. No matter how good they are, how loaded they are, or how well constructed they are, and I think that applies certainly to Toronto, somewhat to Tampa, to Florida. I think you could poke holes in the. Florida team construction a little bit more easily, but nonetheless, I mean, that's the best offense of the cap era, right? By, by a fair bit. They outscored everyone else in the NHL by 25 goals. They were plus 96 goal differential, 122 points, and Vasilevsky just ate them, just destroyed them. Yeah, another signature, and the whole series was a signature moment for him, but another signature shutout in a closeout game yeah. for Tampa Bay, holding the Florida Panthers to three goals in four games, I believe I saw uh, Frank Saravelli from the Daily, Daily Faceoff say that was the first time all year the Panthers had been shut out. No surprise it comes at the hands of Andre Vasilevsky in a closeout game. And and you just, you know... He's now on the Brodeur, Hashik, Wa Mount Rushmore. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, he, and, and with a chance to, like, be alone with Hashik at the top. Yeah. I mean, you keep, keep playing like this in the playoffs, keep helping your team win Stanley Cups... He, he's he's on that pace. And, I mean, you can look up and down the roster for guys and start talking about what their legacy could be, like, beyond just Hall of Fame. How are we going to regard, you know, Victor Hedman when all is said and done? The guy I really think is interesting um, is John Cooper uh, because, uh, you know, I have this thing in in the NFL and the NBA where there, were a, there was, like, a long, long stretch in both of those sports where every year the Coach of the Year award should have been Bill Belichick and Greg Popovich. It's like, those are the best coaches. Their teams win all mm. the time. Those are the best coaches. We don't have to look for like, oh, what was the best story this year and who overachieved? It's like, no, no, no. Those are the best coaches. And I kind of feel like John Cooper is getting to that point as well, where it's just, he's the best coach. They do the they do the thing the best every year. We're almost out thinking ourselves. And I know, look, it's a season-by-season season award. I get that. It doesn't, it doesn't account for the kind of multi-year program and culture building that... Cooper has done so well, but you just like it's easy to say, oh, they have so much talent and they spend to the cap and all that. And, you know, it's an easy job for a coach. Man, it is not easy to have a team that focused, that forceful, you know, all of those things. It's it's an incredible, incredible coaching job by John Cooper. And Cooper's versatility is second to none, right? I mean, he can run 11-7 in terms of how he deploys his lines. He made 11-7 an advantage. Not not a not a break glass. Yeah, not a. Oh my goodness, thing. we have to do this. Yeah, now he doesn't. Now he doesn't. But I mean, the the way that they game planned, especially for the Panthers, because again, I I don't think it was quite as effective a- against the Leafs. Like the Leafs carried play five on five. The Panthers carried play five on five too. But it it, it certainly felt different. 
and and not just because they got 980 goaltending. Like it felt different watching it. You just felt like the Panthers were slowly being broken by the Lightning in a way that you didn't feel with the Leafs. Right with the Leafs, it felt like that Leafs series. It felt more like Tampa Bay was hanging on and just believed more and ultimately grinded it out. This felt like they were breaking a team that they knew they had. I want to uh, I want to get to some Canuck stuff here, and I, I want to talk about Florida and that angle as well. Coming out of that series, there's some good texts coming in, but it just kind of occurred to me we're talking about Tampa winning ten series in a row and how it's become old hat to them. How far back would you have to go to find the Canucks' last ten playoff series wins? Right, and and you know you and it's not just because the Canucks have been a pretty futile team well, sorry, for a lot of their history. The wild. Mm, let's you okay, sure. Blue, let's let's count the you wild. Count the wild. And let's the count blues. the wild. Okay, we'll so definitely you, count the Blues. But let's oh, yeah, just yeah. for the sake of argument, let's count two. the the Blues or sorry the Wild too. So that's two. Then twenty eleven would be three. Yeah. So that's five. And then I think they went to the second round three years in a row. Three years in a row. The Anaheim loss. The two Chicago losses. So that gets you to eight. And we're back to what? Like two thousand nine at that point. Two thousand eight. Yeah. So then then you have to go to the the Calgary. Well, they lost the Calgary series in the first round. Yeah. Well, the, the, the Dallas 15. series would be yeah. Yeah. The Dallas series they won. Yeah. And and that's like nine, and then you go back to... Sorry, I was already counting that, though, because that's the one where they lose to the Ducks. They lose to the Ducks, and they lose to the Blackhawks twice in the second You're right, you're right. Over over five years. You're and right. Then, and then, so you have to go to uh, the Blues victory that the West Coast Express had. Yep. And they won one other round. They did. Who did they? Who was the other team they beat in the first round? I'm, I'm coming up. I know, I'm was it the Wild? Too. No, oh, they lost no, to the no. Wild. They lost to the Wild that year. Well, somebody text in. Yeah. But you're right. You're going back to the, you're going the back West Coast almost... Express only win one series? No. no. That can't be possible. Uh, it might be. Well, anyways, you're going back minimum to the West Coast Express era. Yeah, oh yeah. And that's an exercise you could do. It's 20 years. You could ju- That's an exercise you could do for a lot of other and teams, they've too. And t- they've won 10 straight series since the pandemic started. Yeah. <laughs> like, Amazing. Do that exercise for the Flames. Do that exercise for a whole bunch of other teams. It's And they've done it in, as you said, two years, basically. Oh, and two I calendar just, years. I need, to, I need to point out, too, the... Uh, the uh, anything can happen element uh, of the Tampa Bay Lightning, right? Because obviously this has been my big picture hobby horse. I get a lot of individual game picks wrong. I get a lot of series picks wrong. But the big picture take for me this playoffs is anything can't happen. And I actually had Boudreaux weigh in on this today, by the way, and he sort of agreed but thought that I was missing the romance of the underdog, which is, of course, the most Boudreaux possible answer. <laughs> it definitely is. So good. But with regard to the Tampa Bay Lightning, right? They've won back-to-back. They're in the final four. And, you know, the one the one part that's interesting is if you go back to uh, tw- 2008, right? So if we go back 14 years, 13, 13 years plus this year. Yeah. The Tampa Bay Lightning are the only team that's won in that stretch that's still alive, right? The Rangers haven't. The Carolina Hurricanes haven't. Calgary hasn't. Edmonton hasn't. Uh, oh, the Blues have, but they're not going to win. So <laughs> Colorado hasn't. I'm already I'm already writing off the Blues because they've spent the entire series crying uh, and making fools of. The if blues. you want to talk, we'll, we'll get to this later. But if you want to talk about like moral defeats, that was a moral defeat last <laughs> night in St. Louis. Just gruesome and so richly deserved. Mm-hmm. So, other than the Blues, everyone else would be a, would be a first time winner, but the Lightning would not. What's amazing to me? What's amazing to me is that in the NBA you have the opposite, right? Only the Mavericks. Um, actually, no, the Mavericks won in 2011. Mm-hmm. There are none of the final four NBA teams have not won a championship since 08. The Heat did with LeBron. The Warriors obviously yep. were Celtics. Big three yep. constantly. Yeah. So they've all won one since 08. And yet, if you go back to 08, you'll find seven 
distinct cup winners and nine distinct NBA champions. And that's in a league where LeBron plays in the final every year and Golden State and Cleveland played four consecutive. And you still have a wider variety of of champions in the NBA than you have in hockey. I mean, yeah, we we have to we have to stop just like parroting the parody thing. <laughs> parroting the parody thing. It's a parody that we parrot the parody thing. It, truly, we need to accept that in hockey, winning begets winning. There are teams that know how to win. Elite teams that know how to win are the most dangerous of all. We're seeing that in the python-like Tampa Bay Lightning and their and their ability to just sort of strangle their opponents in the Atlantic this playoffs. I'm just trying to add up quickly in my head to um, how many distinct winners there have been in Major League Baseball, which, of course, does not have a salary cap and is, oh, you want to be like baseball and the same teams win every year? But just, like, off the top of my head, yeah, Dodgers, Yankees, Red Sox have won, but the Nationals, uh, the Royals, the Cubs, like, there's been a fair number of distinct winners in Major League Baseball over that uh, over that period as well. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. The smart alternative, visit Dunbar Lumber on Bridge Street in Ladner or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. Uh, a, a, a whole bunch of people texted in, by the way, Drance, we were trying to figure out when the Canucks' 10th playoff victory was, like lap, going backwards, and a couple people have texted in. Please tell in. me it's not 95. Yes. No! The Blues in 1995. Oh, it's always the Blues. So The Blues are Vancouver's... Um, or, sorry, the the Blues are to Vancouver as Vancouver is to Calgary, right? If you right. win in the first round, you you beat the uh, you, <laughs> you beat, beat the, Blues. the Blues. Yeah, um, lots of texts coming in about Tampa here too. Rick says, "Just look at how Tampa has changed their style each year and each opponent." Cooper is the best coach in the league for sure. This one comes in the way Tampa looks is possessed. They may not lose again this year, especially if Vasilevsky keeps his play up. That's from Marcus bet, and Gibson. I'd bet the over on point five uh, losses yes. for the for the Tampa Bay Lightning. <laughs> yeah, the rest of the way. Uh, the, but, I, the... but I love. I mean, they do have like that. That's one of those things that I disagree with, but it has the virtue of being true. Yeah, it, because it, they have that aura now. It feels true, right? Like it. You, you, it's not an outlandish thing. Like you understand where the texture is coming from. Like, look how they're playing right now. It's incredible. Uh, and Minor Matt and Abbotsford text in, it seems as though every player on the Tampa Bay roster wants it more than their counterpart, not to mention Cooper seems to be able to put smart, uh, to outsmart every other coach. Yikes, says Minor Matt in Abbotsford. Keep your thoughts coming in, 650-650. Uh, there is lots more to get into from the uh, from the playoffs, and Battle of Alberta goes tonight again, which is really exciting. But I did want to get some Canucks talk in here as well. And we were talking before the show, Drance, and kind of trying to make the math work to to say definitively that this was the halfway point of the Stanley Cup playoffs. But we'll say roughly. It's in the ballpark of the halfway point of the Stanley Cup playoffs. And when you follow or support a team that's on the outside looking in, you know, I think most people who are Canucks fans or a lot of people who are Canucks fans are also just hockey fans. So you're watching for enjoyment. But I think kind of in the back of your mind, there's always the question of, what does this mean for the Canucks? How does this impact for the Canucks? How do they measure up? How can they get to the level that we're seeing play out night after night in the playoffs right now? And I, I wanted to pose this question to the listeners and to you, Drancer, 650-650. What have you seen from the playoffs so far that has changed your opinion, good or bad, about the Canucks? What's been your big takeaway overall, not just from one team or another, but from watching the totality of these playoffs so far and how it relates to the Vancouver Canucks. And I'm glad you brought up the 
the issue of Tampa and playing two really, really fast offensively talented teams in Toronto and Florida. Because despite the fact that we're sitting here raving about how well Tampa had has matched those teams and how well Tampa has played, I still think the overall takeaway for me more than anything from these playoffs might be the importance of speed and the importance of being able to play fast at a team level. Because the pace of these games, yeah, I know Tampa's able to slow it down uh, when it suits them. But the pace of these games is so incredibly high. And I think that's a, an individual speed thing. I think it's a tactical thing. But if there's just kind of one thing that stands out to me, again, even before we get into personnel, anything like that about what the Canucks need to do, they need to be able to find a way to survive and play successfully at this type of pace. And I'm not, well, I'm not sure. I know they, don't have, they didn't have the capability to do it this year. Yeah, Correct. And there's things you can do to address it to some extent, but, you know, it, it takes more than just tactical decisions. It takes more than just punt and hunt. It's going to take an overhaul of this club's talent level and, and an overhaul of their depth personnel and for sure an overhaul of their defensive personnel. I know that the organization thinks that there's ways to scheme so that the club breaks out more cleanly, but, I mean, I suspect that that... The, the disagreement that I'd probably have with the organization is that I'm far lower on their defense core than it feels like Jim Rutherford is, right? Even as, you know, I feel like I've agreed with the lion's share of Rutherford's public comments. You know, his take on the defense core is probably not one that I'd particularly share, right? The idea that something can be made out of this defense core. You know, I'm skeptical. That said, the man won a Stanley Cup with Ron Hainsey as his number one defenseman and another one with Frantisek Caberlet as his number one defenseman. So, you know, I'm not going to quibble too much. I'm not going to pump my chest and pretend that I'm certain um, when Rutherford says something like that. But I certainly eye it dubiously. My read on that is I think you can raise this is kind of like a classic like sports talk radio jargon thing. But I think you can raise the floor with those tactical changes, right? Like you can take a less than ideal set of defensemen and change some things about the way you play and get better performance about them. But to reach that kind of championship ceiling, it's going to take a lot more than just that, right? You you also need to have a serious injection of talent in addition to playing with that extra structure. I just think if you watch these games though and watch how teams, like the defender will separate the opponent from the puck or win a battle in their own end and it's like a quick pass into the middle of the ice, like a high-risk pass, followed by a quick release valve pass back to the corner or back behind the net. The four-checkers sort of overlean one way, and the team makes another quick area pass, and then they begin to attack as a team. I mean, there's like four or five passes, four or five clever plays. It takes a lot of two-way IQ. It takes a lot of reliability and, and intelligent decision-making, and I just don't see that level as a group. There's obviously players that have it, Quinn Hughes goes without saying, does that in his sleep, right? He 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 can make plays like that the way that you know you or I could eat Cheerios, uh, just as like a matter of routine, something we don't even think about. Uh, I think Ekman Larson can do it, for example. But as a group, I don't know that there's enough of that two way intelligence to to pull that off on a systems level with with the sort of consistency you need. But that's just me. I, I also challenge, like I challenge our listeners, watch these playoff games, watch how teams break out just watch the four or five quick area passes they're like short 10 foot passes between and there's four or five and then the team starts to attack as a group you see it five times a period in every game and I think you saw it five times in the entirety of Boudreaux's tenure in Vancouver like the team just didn't play that way at all 
It's one of the most it's one of the most recognizable tactical anachronisms that I can remember from watching the Canucks and then watching the playoffs. Since do you remember in the Tortorella era how the Canucks would like stop with the puck behind their own net for like long yes. portions before trying to break out, and it, you know it was just like oh my goodness. Uh, and then you'd watch the playoffs and no one else played that way. That's how I feel about the Canucks breakout this season. So I wasn't shocked. Like, I'm not shocked that Rutherford brought it up and pinpointed that. Um, but I, I don't know that I side with him on the idea that the club should be able to provide their personnel with more options to do it cleanly. I don't know that they have the personnel to execute it. Yeah, and, and just in general, even beyond the breakout issue, when I look at how the Canucks are currently constructed and I look at how teams are playing and which teams are succeeding in the playoffs... I can imagine a scenario where this forward group, without major changes, major surgery, you just look at the forward group and, you know, some players improve naturally. You know, Patterson reaches his potential. Bo Horvat maybe gets a little better as a two-way forward. And then you kind of build around the edges uh, with some of those, like, cheap, low-cost bets that you can make on the wings and you can find contributors. I can envision a scenario, not that it's definitely going to happen, but where... A forward group that looks pretty similar to what the Canucks currently have with some minor additions becomes a, a part of a successful playoff team. With the blue line, you're talking about more than just minor changes, right? Like, I, I can't envision that same scenario with the blue line that I can envision with the forwards. And look, you need to improve your team everywhere. I understand that. If, if you can improve more forward, that's great as well. But just the area that still stands out to me when I compare the Canucks roster to every other, you know, the rosters that are still playing right now in the NHL, it is the blue line. I think there's there's just much more to work with for the Canucks at forward than there is currently on defense. Well, no question. But even up front, I do think you're going to need, you, you know, you need a lot. Anyway, I want to I want to quickly talk. Uh, we don't have the the ding ready to go probably, but I want to talk a, a last soliloquy for my Florida Panthers. Right. Hold on. Let, let's take a break. We'll do it on the other side. You can you can prep. Well, no, I don't want to talk about it. I don't right, want to belabor right. it. I All just right. want to quickly. I want to rip the bandaid off here. <laughs> All right. The fact of the Florida Panthers remains that they were mired in the mushy middle with an elite core, and the reason I've talked about them so frequently over the course of the season is that to me they offer a template forward for the Canucks. How do you quickly turn around a team with really good young pieces, like elite young pieces, that's poorly constructed and poorly managed? You know, for me, that's that's the task at hand for Rutherford, and I think the Florida template offers some really interesting insight in terms of rebuilding the blue line, in terms of shedding high-cost forwards and finding smart value replacements. And when you look through all of the things that went well for Florida, right, you declare hitting, Verhage hitting, Forsling hitting off waivers, Lomberg hitting in free agency, um, Sam Bennett acquired for two seconds becomes just a stud two-way center um, beside Huberto. Sam Reinhart refines his form as this elite two-way forward after they trade for him. Radko Gudis, incredible. Mason right? Marchment. Mason Marchment <laughs> coming out of 50 nowhere. 50-point guy. Yeah. Sure, why not? Maxim Mammon. And then and then you and then you consider too that like Barkov leveled up, right? Huberto became <laughs> the best playmaking winger in hockey for me. Um Aaron Ekblad continues to be a stud. Mackenzie Weger continues to be a top pair defenseman, although although he had a bit of a rough playoffs from a puck management perspective. And that might be an interesting angle for for someone to pursue in the event that the Florida Panthers make a mistake and sort of judge him to be responsible in any meaningful way for for what happened in the playoffs. All of that went right for the Panthers. All of that. 
and they were the best offense in the cap era, and they had a plus almost 100 goal differential, and 122 points won the President's Trophy over over a two-year span. Everything went right. And then they get swept by the Tampa Bay Lightning because this is a cruel, cruel league. And you can do everything right. You can have great process. You can hit on every bet you place. And you're still going to bump into an elite team in the playoffs. And, and you still need so much to go your way to win. And when you think about where the Panthers are today and how much talent they've amassed and where you think about Vancouver is, you know, at best two years behind them. And I'd say more because part of the Panthers rise is that they had buying power during the pandemic when no one else did. Uh, that's not like a replicable set of circumstances. Like you have to keep that in mind in adjudicating or keeping in your mind's eye, just how far away this team is from making noise late into the postseason, Even if, even if they have a goaltender who you believe can be a closer facsimile to Vasilevsky than Bobrovsky. Uh, in the near term. And the other thing with the Panthers, and you know, I'm not suggesting they're going to fall off a cliff here or anything like that. They're still going to be a really good team next year, but they've also got some difficult uh, cap situations to to navigate as well, right? Like Alex Barkov or Alexander Barkov gets a lot more expensive next year. Carter Verhage gets a big raise. The Keith Yandel buyout spikes for one season and goes up to over $5 million. So their situation well, is going Huberto to be Huberto needs an extension yep. and Uyghur needs an extension and those aren't going to be affordable. Uh, but there's a reason why we keep bringing up Patrick Hornfist's name, right? Mason Marchment. You can't see a route for them re-signing Mason Marchment. Uh, hard to see a route for them re-signing Max and Mammon. There's going, they're going to bleed talent. But also, they've shown pretty reliably the ability to draft well in later rounds. You think about Justin Sordiff, who they took in the third round. Um, you know, that guy might be ready. That guy might be uh, ready to help He next might year. be a crucial, crucial player for them next year because they're going to totally. need low, cheap guys to step into the lineup. 100%. And and they've found pretty consistently that that affordable labor on the on the open market too. Plus, nice place to live, low tax rate, good team. Not going to have a tough time pitching those guys. Certainly going to have an easier time than you know high taxes fishbowl team that hasn't been consistent the way the Vancouver Canucks have. Right. So it's not like it's an equal playing field for them trying to find that labor uh, versus versus Vancouver. So reasons to believe they'll navigate it. I still think they're going to be a high end team. Maybe they're not hundred percent, hundred percent. And, but, but, you know, there's certainly some interesting things going on there. Um, they, they shouldn't overreact here, but I do think as a measuring stick, realizing how good they are and how short they came is useful for Canucks fans to keep in mind in terms of this club's timeline. It's Canucks Hour here, Sportsnet 650. Uh, we'll keep ch- we'll keep reading your texts that are coming in. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Plus, we'll talk a little bit uh, about the Colorado-St. Louis series, what went down in St. Louis with Nazem Kadri yesterday. Look ahead to uh, his offseason UFA status. Plus, more on the Battle of Alberta, which resumes tonight as well. You're listening to the Home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to the show. It is Canucks Hour, Sportsnet 650, your home of the Canucks. Jamie Dodd, Canucks insider, Thomas Durant's here as well. Canucks Hour brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery. AvenueMachinery.ca. And uh, we asked our our listeners, Durant's, what have they taken away from the Stanley Cup playoffs as it relates 
to the Vancouver Canucks. Uh, some good ones coming in. Andrew and Victoria. This isn't a, a recommendation you'll hear very often from fans about their favorite NHL team, but he says uh, the Canucks need to channel the Mike Milbury management style from his time with the Islanders. Just keep trading. Always be trading. I don't know about the uh, <laughs> the, the content of the trades. I mean, I mean, <laughs> that the Islanders should have had a Luongo Chara Spezza nucleus that for sure would have won a cup. That that you for sure win a cup with a defenseman that good, a goalie that good, and a center that good if you keep them together. So I don't want that. I, I, I will I say this. no. I vote no. I will say this. Again, leaving just Slap talking me about, with a shoe. Just I vote talking no. about quantity, not quality. As a as a sports radio host, I would have no problem with uh, some rapid fire trades from Canucks well, management. You've got Jim Rutherford, so yeah. you should you should be in for some of that. Fingers crossed. I, everyone we talked to in Pittsburgh was like, "Oh, you just you wait, guys. Just you wait. It's going to be fireworks." And we're still we're still waiting to get to the fireworks factory here. Yeah, Grant's you know. Yes, we are still waiting, but I don't think we'll be waiting much longer. Yeah, uh, and this one came in as well. Uh, what stands out in the NHL and NBA is that winning is a mindset, and every game and situation is about knowing how to win. The Golden State Warriors and the Tampa Bay Lightning, they win because they win, because they know how to win, and they have the players to do it, and they have buy-in from the whole organization uh, as to how you have to play and manage the team to win well, and also helps to have cheat codes. Yeah, uh, the the Golden State Warriors have a guy with limitless range who is the best three point shooter we've ever seen. They also have the second best <laughs> three point shooter we've ever seen. And now they like just randomly in a lab cooked up a third Splash Brother. Yes, it's like okay, it's like sure. out of nowhere. Yeah. Oh, also Andrew out Wiggins. Of, Andrew Wiggins. Yeah. He's an elite stopper now. Sure. Yeah. Also, like one of the best defensive players of all time, and Draymond Green. And yeah. Yeah. And 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 in the Lightning's case, you know, nine eighty goaltending in elimination games. Like my goodness, not uh, bad. Vasilevsky's, not bad to have in your pocket. A chief cheat code. And by the way, what's amazing about having as many good players as the Tampa Bay Lightning have, right, is like Kucherov and Vasilevsky weren't great against Toronto, right? Braden Point was phenomenal, and Victor Hedman, I thought, had maybe his best series of this run against the Maple Leafs. He single-handedly, he was amazing. He single-handedly turned game six. He, it was machine-like. And then you get to this Florida series, and all of a sudden Vasilevsky and Kucherov just take over everything, and it's a completely different game for, you know, they don't even have Braden Point, and it kind of doesn't matter. It, it's incredible. When you, when you have enough great players, you can overcome... You know, Vasilevsky not outdueling Jack Campbell, stuff like that. And and you need that because you need to survive long enough in the playoffs for your quality to matter. You think about think about the 2011 run, right? The Sedins had something like 10 points in the first uh, 12 games of that run, you know? And people were like, whoa, what's going on with the Twins? And on and on. And then they just completely pummeled the San Jose oh, Sharks. Yeah. Just like completely blew them out of the water. But it was like... Kessler against Nashville. Nashville, Yannick Hansen oddly against Chicago, and and obviously we know Burroughs scored the big goal, but I mean it was like Yannick Hansen was was like leading the offensive charge in the first couple games of that series. Um, it took a while for the Twins' quality to show through, and that's sort of how the playoffs can work. Sometimes you need to survive long enough for your quality to matter, and and you need enough quality to get there. So yes. The, the, there's no arguing that the Golden State Warriors and the Tampa Bay Lightning know how to win, but you also have to be good enough that it matters. You need 
you need both of those things, I think, is all is the ultimate takeaway. That you need to have that kind of transcendent talent and you need to marry it to all the other things that the texture was talking about. It's right? so and hard. It's incredibly difficult to do. It's, incredibly it's difficult to do. It's such a cruel league. Yeah. And and you know, that's the last thing is uh the playoffs should not be used as a referendum on a team's quality. And and I'm not just saying this because I'm defensive about my Florida Panthers, but the Florida Panthers are a very, very good team, and we saw that over 82 games in which they performed spectacularly. Getting swept in the playoffs doesn't mean you're not a good team. Just ask the well, 2018 Tampa Bay Lightning. Yeah, especially not by getting swept by the Tampa Bay Lightning. And, well, and no, look, but even if you get swept by the Columbus Blue Jackets, yeah. like, you know, it is what it is sometimes in the playoffs. The playoffs are not designed to efficiently reward the highest quality team. That's what the regular season does. The playoffs are a tournament where an awful lot has to go your way, which is why I push back so hard on the just get in and anything can happen thing. Because it's not like that. That's not how you win. You have to give yourself enough window, enough of a enough space for your quality to matter, for you to break through, for things to line up for your group. And we've seen that time and time again over the past decade. And I have no idea why people still push back on this. Well, and I think we have seen enough examples of teams breaking through and shedding the, oh, they can't get it done in the playoffs label, right, to kind of give up on that. I mean, the Washington Capitals are the obvious example, who, who have been so incredibly successful in the regular season before breaking through and winning the Stanley Cup. But even the Tampa Bay Lightning, I mean, you remember the what the conversation was like after they got swept by Columbus, and it was, oh, you know, can't... They can't win a cup like that, you know, relying on skill players, yada, yada, yada. And all they've done since then is win 10 straight playoff series. So the Florida could easily be, you know, in the kind of early stages of something like we saw from the Washington Capitals or the Tampa Bay Lightning, where they go on to have a ton of playoff success despite a bump in the road uh, like the one that just happened to them last night, getting swept by the Tampa Bay Lightning. I want to bring up a piece of hockey poetry from Rod Brindamore talking about faceoffs, and it's just... The best hockey quote, this is like encapsulates my entire theory of the game, and I just love it so much. He said about face-offs, they all matter, and they all don't. <laughs> and that's perfect. That's exactly it, right? That's the counterintuitive nature of the game, right? I, again, I was talking to Boudreaux earlier today about zone exits and entries, and he was talking about, um, you know, how much attention should you pay to a team that has 43 attempted um, exits, right? Like how much, how much attention should you pay to that? Or are you better off just looking at which ones resulted in turnovers, mm -hmm. right? Like how do you, and I remember the first time that Corey Sch um, Schneider, who, who runs the all three zones project presented his data and he had the whole season's worth of data tracked with volunteers. And it immediately became apparent to me that it, the best teams were not the teams that were the most efficient at entering the zone. It wasn't the teams that had like the highest success rate of carry-ins. And it wasn't the teams that had the highest uh, percent of controlled entries. The teams that were the best teams were the teams that attempted the most entries. Because they always had the puck. Yeah. That, those were the teams you wanted to be. And it's like, so zone exits, zone entries, they matter, you know, and they, they all matter, and they all don't. What really matters is just having the puck. Goaltending, right? Goaltending matters more than anything else. Until it doesn't. Until you win because because your offensive stars destroy a series or, or pick up your goaltender, score just enough to get you through. 
It all matters and it all doesn't. And it's the perfect way of looking at it. Hockey is this game that's so dedicated to taking the most illogical path to a logical conclusion. And that's why things that feel true in the moment, in one game, in one game seven, in one series, any team can beat any team on one in one game, in one series. It's true, but not any team can win enough over 25 in the playoffs to hoist the Stanley uh, Cup. They, they all matter and they all don't is a, a quote Yogi Berra would be proud of himself. So uh, shout, shout out to Rod Verdemore for that it's, one. It's the perfect marriage of, you know, understanding how to, how to sort of pull, like, how to pull signal out of the noise, the constant sturm and drang that is hockey. It's beautiful. I want to talk about uh, what Nazem Kadri did in St. Louis oh. for the Colorado Avalanche. One of the all-time great... Shut up, everyone here in the away building performances uh, that we've seen in the NHL with Kadri after getting uh, slammed and and subjected to racist abuse because of, you know, the the collision with Jordan Biddington in the previous game, coming out, scoring a hat trick in St. Louis, helping his team pick up a win, leading the series 3-1, just an incredible performance. And I, I don't want to downplay by any stretch, you know, what he and his family have had to deal with and how much that would mean for him just in the moment. But Kadri is becoming a really, really fascinating player right now. I mean, you know, he was incredible, incredible in the regular season, coming off an absolute career year. And the kind of conventional wisdom knock on Nazem Kadri has always been, well, you know, he's volatile in the playoffs. Is is he going to be available in the playoffs or is he going to take a suspension? Can you really count on him in the big moments when you get to the postseason. And now, not only is he performing, but he is, you know, the Blues are embarrassing themselves, try to get, trying to get under Kadri's skin and provoke him into doing something silly and throwing him off his game, uh, and he's let, not doing it. And let's go let's go further than this. Like, this this is one where we, sh- we can't even talk about it in the normal frame with which we discuss sports, right? Like, this is not guy overcomes, um, you know, hardship, right? Like, the reaction of fans to Kadri and his family is despicable racism. Despicable racism. And the actions of the Blues to attack Kadri with the consistency that they did, considering that environment, considering the comments of their coach, I mean, there were there were plays there where you'd say that was intent to injure. Well, the Perron attempted elbow after one of Kadri's goals. Brutal, but like also, that, that could have been also so the way ugly. they jumped him. I mean, that that wasn't sneaky dirty. I've heard people describe it as sneaky dirty. That was all out thuggery, and you know, the moral cowardice of that organization, the moral cowardice evinced by several of the players, and certainly some, but not all of the St. Louis Blues fans, particularly those that message the cadres directly, um, you know, there's a clear bad guy in that series. There's a clear bad guy. Oh, yeah. And, you know, I, I think I think some hard questions should probably be asked by that organization. Not not about the result, not about the result, but about the way that they carried themselves through, through a, you know, like you, you'd want to say a thorny situation, but honestly, it's a really clear cut situation and they failed. They failed on every measure to appropriately support a guy who at the end of the day is a colleague. Yeah, he's a rival, but he's also a colleague. He's part of the PA. Like he he plays in the same league as you. You know, you want to beat him, but you you got to have his back when he's subjected to racial taunts from your fans. Come on. You've got to be able to at least stand up and say that's completely unacceptable. Um 
you know, I, I thought I thought that was just a miserable showing by the Blues organization and honestly highlighted a gap that the league still has to close in terms of making the game appropriately welcoming for, you know, people of, of different colors, creeds, backgrounds. Yeah, and it was, uh, that's well said, Dranchard. It was great to see, it, it was really, really great to see Kadri um, have that performance and, you know, just on a, on a very human level. And we had someone text in earlier, I can't find the text right now, but saying that, uh, they're a person of color and a hockey fan, and they found it extremely inspiring for Nazem Kadri to do that. I, I agree with that sentiment. And as you said, now there's a pretty clear rooting interest. For if you're not already a St. Louis Blues fan, it's pretty easy to get on board the, uh, the, the Colorado Avalanche bandwagon, at least for the remainder of this series. And again, as it, as it kind of pertains to Kadri purely as a hockey player, this is he is setting himself up for a monumental payday potentially in the offseason, right? In not a, you know, there, there's not necessarily a headliner out there at center who's going to be a UFA. And with the season he's having and now what he's doing in these playoffs specifically, this is the type of contract that I, I don't want to say it is going to reset the market, but might kind of change what we think of for what a center can get who's not kind of a clear-cut top 10, top 15 center in the NHL, but who's still really, really, really good. I mean, he was in the top 10 for he us was, in for scoring, scoring for yep. most of this year. Um, you know, what's what's interesting about it is I don't expect the Avs to make a, a really strong push to re-sign him just because of their own cap math, the fact that McKinnon expires beyond this season. They've also got Kucherov to lock up and Darcy Kemper. You know, the, the nature of the cap makes it so, so difficult to keep players together. And the Avs are going to be up against that in a major way. So, you know, I, I expect I expect that they're going to be willing to let him walk unless it's a team-friendly settlement. I, I think that's abundantly clear from their positioning, from how both sides have talked about the situation over the course of the year. And I think there's a lesson to be learned there. You know, it's one thing to go into the postseason with Nazem Kadri when you're as good as Colorado, right? even though he's on an expiring deal and you know it's probably a short-term thing. But I, I think it shows, it certainly poses a difficult question for the Canucks with JT Miller, right? Because very similar seasons, very similar ages. I think Kadri's a little bit older. He is, yeah. He's, I think, two years older, I want to say. And, and the Colorado Avalanche, one of the smartest teams in hockey, right? They're not going to make it a priority to resign that player, probably. Well, if you should do what Colorado does, if you want to mimic what Colorado's built, and boy, oh boy, do I want that. <laughs> I really want to cover a team like that. Um, you know, then then I think the path forward might be clear for Vancouver, as as hard as that is to swallow, considering JT Miller's quality and and how much of the good stuff that this team does. He drives directly. It's just a really tough. It's a really tough decision that the organization is going to face. And the, I, and the situations aren't. You know, it's not just a hypothetical comparison, right? Because if if Kadri, as as we expect, goes to the open market and signs a big deal with a team other than the Colorado Avalanche, you know, that deal becomes one of the benchmarks that uh, that is going to affect the J T. Miller negotiations, right? So there again, it's not just kind of a theoretical comparison. It's there, those situations are linked, and it's something that Canucks fans are going to be paying really close attention to when it does materialize uh, for Nazem Kadri. Quickly, before we get out, Game 4 the Battle of Alberta tonight. Calgary down 2-1. I haven't seen the latest update. I did see that Chris Tanev 
was with the team at morning skate today, but it doesn't look like he's uh, going to be in the lineup, or at the very least it might be a game-time decision or something like that. Uh, what are you expecting from Edmonton and Calgary tonight? I mean, Edmonton just crushed them in Game 3, and Calgary needs to have a response to that, and, and, a, and a significant one. At the end of the day, here's the tale of the tape. Like, here's all you need to know about this series. With McDavid on the ice at 5-on-5, five five, the Oilers have outscored the Calgary Flames 10-4. to four. Okay? In all other minutes, the Calgary Flames have outscored the Edmonton Oilers 6-2. to two. There you go. That's the story of the series so far. And so the Flames need to do a better job of containing McDavid. And, and what's interesting about it is if you look at the underlying profile of it, McDavid... With McDavid on the ice, the Oilers have 30 shots, but they've scored on 10 of them. So, yeah, you need to do a better job defensively, but McDavid's going to get his chances. That's what McDavid does. At the end of the day, they need Markstrom to look and play like Markstrom. And, I mean, we can get into this more tomorrow based on how Markstrom performs. Sure. But I think I think this series, for me, the, the big picture takeaway, if you're the Canucks, is going to be on goalie load management, right? If you want to be able to hang with Connor McDavid in you know the playoffs in May, right? You can't have Thatcher Demko playing his 75th game of the year. You just can't. You just can't. You will make him look silly as good as he is because of the difficulty, the the physical exertion required to play that position at a high level in this league. Uh, you will be able to hear Calgary and Edmonton on 650 later tonight. But up next, it is the People Show. Big Nazar, Randy Janda. You've got it on the home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650.